0: Well, this morning, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to do a teaching instead of me preaching Um, because, I mean, don't get excited because it'll probably just go just as long, but we're going to get right into God's Word um, because I think it's an important topic. So uh, if you have your Bible, I'm going to turn to um, Psalm 122.6, 122.6. And it's an important subject that is going on in our headlines today. And it's about the topic of Israel. The topic of Israel. Psalm 122.6 says this, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, they shall prosper that love thee. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, they shall prosper that love thee. This is a famous verse that we quote all the time in reference to the idea that if you pray for Jerusalem, a blessing will come upon you. And it's, it's tied to the issue of, of Israel, but what exactly is Israel? When you start looking in the Bible and start to try to figure out what exactly Israel is, is it a people, is it a nation, is it a land? And the answer is yes, it's all of them. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, they shall prosper that love thee. When it comes to Israel, there seems to be this blessing that is attached with it, especially as, as like I said, the headlines that are in the news and the war and the chaos. And it seems like Israel is surrounded by a group of nations that just want to destroy it. Now, there is a reason for this. There is a political reason. There is a spiritual reason for the destruction of Israel. But today I want to talk about the history of Israel in the Bible. Because what it does is it gives us the background of the church and right away as soon as i say that i will be accused of anti-semitism i will be accused of being racist and denying who the jewish people are and all that so let's just get that out of the way and and just right up front i'm going to just simply tell you what the bible says and the history of israel going forward so when it comes to israel before that before Israel there was a covenant made with Abraham Abraham was a a man that came it seems like out of nowhere in Genesis chapter 12 he shows up on the scene and all of a sudden, God gives him this covenant and says that I will bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse, and, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Out of nowhere, who's Abraham? Abraham actually came from a place, a home that worshiped other idols. Abraham was a part of this place called Mesopotamia where Babylon was and all the uh, cult and the paganistic stuff was happening Abraham was a part of that area. His father then moves up to Haran. And from that, the Bible then calls Abraham, chapter 12, to leave the country that he's in and to go to a place that he'll show him and that God will give him this land and his family and then makes this covenant with God. And what is a covenant? A covenant is simply an agreement, a contract between two parties. So if we make a covenant today, if we decide we were going to get into an agreement It is based upon two parties that come together to make uh, the rules, the terms, and if someone breaks the covenant, it is because someone didn't meet those rules or terms. And there's two different types of covenants that that are in the Bible. One is a conditional covenant, and one is an unconditional covenant. And an unconditional covenant means this, that the one party is responsible for everything. And God makes unconditional covenants with several people. He made one with Noah, where he says that I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. I'll never do it again. Not with, not with the flood. Now, that is not dependent upon Noah. That's not dependent upon his descendants. It's not dependent upon whether people are good or bad or evil or wicked or, or, or righteous. It all depends on God. And God says, I'm not going to do it again. The second covenant then is the covenant with abraham this is an unconditional covenant again where god says listen abraham i will i will i will and it really didn't have anything to do with abraham now abraham was selected for a reason and and i'll talk about in a second but but when it came to god's promises to abraham that he was going to bless him it was based upon an unconditional covenant that god made with abraham i'm going to do it abraham and you're going to be the recipient of this Now, who was Abraham? Abraham, like I said, came from a land that was full of paganistic beliefs. His father worshipped other idols. So if Abraham is growing up in Terah's house, Terah his father, then Abraham is very familiar with all these other gods. But yet, for some reason, God picks Abraham. And we know from the New Testament, in Acts chapter 7, that Abraham actually began to talk with the Lord before he even left Mesopotamia. That God was actually speaking to him before he left. So in the middle of all this paganistic and and idolic worship, God is talking with Abraham. God and Abraham are starting to get to know each other. It's a it's a pretty cool when you think about how from the very place that ends with, you know, in Babylon and Revelation and this great harlot, this, this 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 wicked city that's caused all the havoc around the world, out of that place. God picks someone like Abraham and brings him and promises him, makes him an unconditional covenant. And then from his descendants comes Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob, his name is changed to Israel. And now Israel is on the scene, and Israel, the man, the grandson of Abraham, is now going to have 12 children. And from this we get the 12 tribes of Israel the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, sometimes when it's listed in the Bible, the Joseph's sons are mentioned. And the reason is because the Levites did not have any land to possess or inherit. So so then the two sons will then make a total of 12 because Levi was not a part of the inheritance of the land. And so now Israel has 12 sons and they begin to grow and they begin to populate. And then God makes a covenant with Israel. Israel. God makes a covenant with Israel. And this, is, and this is what it says in Leviticus 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not, you must not do as they do in Egypt where, they used, where you used to live. But you must not do as they did in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. So here, God makes a covenant with Israel, but it's what we would call a conditional covenant. It requires something. What does it require? It requires their obedience. God makes this covenant with Israel and says, Listen, I will be your God. I will call you. I will bring you, make you a nation, a holy nation. Uh, and I will, you will be my possession, you will be my prize, you will be my people, you will be chosen as my people. But it requires something. It requires obedience. It's a conditional covenant. Now, when God makes a covenant, he keeps it. When God speaks, he does not change his mind. And so with Abraham, you'll notice that God never wavered with his blessings upon Abraham. And when it came to David, who also received an unconditional covenant, David, who was a man after God's own heart, was told by God, I'm going to give you a son who will stay on the throne forever, that your line will always be on the throne forever. So David was given a promise, and it did not depend upon how well his sons behaved. Matter of fact, his sons became very wicked, and some of them even sacrificed their own children to false gods. But yet, the Bible says, for the sake of David, I will not destroy you. Because, see, God's unconditional covenant to David did not matter on what everyone else did. But what mattered in Israel's covenant was it was conditional. And he told the people, I will be your God, you'll be my possession, but you must obey me. That's the key. That's the rule. That's the contract. And God was very sincere with his contract. Matter of fact, people estimate that after three months from the time when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and they were there for four or five, 400 years or so plus, and they were there in slavery, and, and while they're there, they're crying out to God, and God hears them, and God finally sends Moses. Moses comes in, and he speaks to, to Pharaoh. Pharaoh refuses. The plagues happen. Finally, God brings His people out. He pulls them out of Egypt, out of slavery. As they are leaving, this is so cool, as they are leaving, all of Egypt gives them all of their wealth. Because they're like, just get out of here. Just go. And they know that God is with these people. That God himself has done this because of all the plagues. They know that God's people are leaving and we are not going to offend that God. And they just give them everything. They give them rakes and shovels and gold and silver. They gave them everything. All of Egypt was given to slaves. And now these slaves are going through the desert. And as they're going through the desert, Pharaoh finally says, What did I do? I, I, I've lost everything. So he goes after Moses and the people and he wants to get them back. But God comes down and, 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 and protects um, uh, Moses and the people from Pharaoh and divides them with this fire. And, and now the people are facing the Red Sea. Then God parts the Red Sea, opens it up, and produces dry ground so that the people, and some estimate there's, you know, two to three million people, the people go through on dry ground across the Red Sea, and then as soon as they finally pass, and they they waited for everybody, you know, women wearing their high heels took time to get over, you know, and I always ask my wife, why do you wear high heels when we got to go, you know, let's go. So so they finally took time, and they finally got over. And once they got over, they turn back. The fire goes. Pharaoh pursues them, which is crazy. But he pursues them because he's so focused on destroying the people. And as soon as they're in the the middle, the sea comes up and wipes away all their enemies. All the people are watching this. God did this. God did this three months later they are on a mountain at the base of a mountain worshiping a calf a golden calf and saying this is the god that did it this is the god that got us out moses is up receiving the law moses is actually up on the mountain and and god is giving him the law giving him the commandments for the people to follow But the people are down there and they're just involved in all types of debauchery and wickedness and worshiping this false god. And here's what God says. Remember, Israel's covenant was based upon obedience. And here's what God said. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation three months three months I won't ask you but if you ever got a speeding ticket what happens the next time you get out on the highway man you are driving right at that speed limit because you got a speeding ticket. You know that it's going to cost you money and, and you, you know, it's, your insurance is going to go up. And, and so you drive at that same speed limit, at the legal speed limit, because you have felt the effects of a ticket. But what happens after about a week, after about a month, after about a year, you start going right back to where you were before. Why? Because you, you don't remember the effects. Three months Three months these people witnessed, went from slavery to free, went from poor to rich, went from, from crying out to God to watching God do the amazing thing, and now they are there, worshiping like every other paganistic society, and God says, Moses, step aside. I'm going to destroy these people. These people that were chosen by God. The Israel nation that was called by God anointed by God, favored by God. And just in a matter of three months, God says, I'm done with these people. They've broken my covenant. They disobeyed me. They're turning over to all these other gods. Let me alone, Moses. But Moses was a good man. Moses was a good man. Psalm 106, 23 says this, so the Lord said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. Moses says, no, God, please don't don't destroy them. Please don't. And it was for the sake of Moses, praying for the people, pleading for the people, that God says, okay, I'll work with them. I'll work with them. You see, God's covenant with Israel was based upon a condition, obedience. And when that condition was broken, God was going to deal with it. And I just want to just say up front right away that God makes a condition and a contract with us, and it is, un, it is not an unconditional contract. It's a contract that we enter into. We enter into a thing called Christianity. We enter into a thing called follower of Jesus. But, but it is not unconditional. We are not saved, and then we're always saved. There is actually a process where we can fall away from God. We used to call it back in the day backsliding. Backsliding is a really good term that goes for the process of when you believe and you have a relationship with God to the point where you no longer even recognize Him and He doesn't recognize you. Because what happens is you started to slide backwards. You started to lose the ground in which you were. And and we're so afraid to say this in, in churches because we don't want to offend people. But I'll tell you this. If you are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are going to hell. That is what the Bible tells us. And it's not a place that you want to go to. It's a place that is of torment and suffering and it is eternal separation. And don't think that you're going to be oblivious to what's going on. You will remember every single moment of your life regretting the, the, the opportunities you had, regretting the moments you had where you could have made your life right with God. But see, backsliding is not a quick process. It's a slow process. You don't realize how, how far you have gone. The other day, my wife was sick, and I made her some soup. Let me rephrase that. The other day, my wife was sick, and I opened up a can and heated it on the stove for her. <laughs> and then I heated it up. And as I'm heating it up, I'm trying to do other things. And, and I could see the pan was still whisking with steam. So I knew it was still hot. I put it in a bowl, I gave it to her, I presented it to her, and I said, here you go, honey. And the first thing she says was, thank you, can you reheat this? You see, I didn't realize how much it cooled off. I mean, I thought I saw that the steam was still there. I thought it looked hot, but it cooled off. It looked the same, but it wasn't hot. And that's the danger of falling away from the Lord. And how do you you fall away from the Lord? It's a slow process, but it usually starts like this. You stop reading your Bible. You stop praying. And when those two things happen, then you start fellowshipping. You stop associating. You start hanging out. Why? Because people who are in love with Jesus will always remind you of where you used to be. So the easiest thing to do is just to remove them from your life so you don't have to deal with conviction. You don't have to deal with the Holy Spirit saying, come, please, repent, get right, let it go. Don't do that. I need you. I want you. Come home. So backsliding is something that can happen and Israel continued to backslide over and over again. They would turn to God and they would cry out to God but then they would fall away slowly over and over again. Israel was special but not because of the people. People were sinful. The people were rebellious. The people were stiff necked. The people always went away from God. You know what Israel was? Normal people. Because that's who we are as people. We, we don't see God. We don't see Him in our life. And so we don't sometimes even think He exists or He's watching. But yet the Bible says He's always watching. He's always watching. There's a story in, in Ezekiel where Ezekiel's getting a vision. And he sees. He sees, God takes him and he sees the overall temple. And and when you when we mention the temple, we are literally talking about the presence of God, where God is. And so so Ezekiel is taken up to heaven and he's able just just above the earth and he's able to see the whole temple grounds. And God says to him, I'm gonna show you some things that are detestable to me. I'm gonna show you some things that are just wrong. And so he goes and he shows that as soon as you get into the presence of God, into the temple, there's an idol there. There's an idol there, right there, that's blocking the ability for Ezekiel to even enter into the presence of God. There's just a false idol right there. And God says, I'm going to show you something even worse than that, Ezekiel. And he takes him into the the courtyard to a wall. And Ezekiel begins to dig into this wall. And he's able to get in, in this vision. He's able to get to it. And he finally goes to the outer wall of the temple. And he starts digging. And he sees a doorway. It's a secret doorway. It's dark. And Ezekiel opens this doorway. And he looks in there. And what does he see? He sees 70 men of Israel. In front of 70 different wicked, evil idols, everything that is filthy, everything that is dirty, everything that is unclean, and and all these false gods, they are all there, 70 of them are in this temple, in the dark, in a secret room. Now we, we speculate that it was probably like a storage room inside the temple where you would put things off to the side and they closed it up so no one could see. And inside of this secret room, here's what they said. God cannot see us. He can't see us. But I'll tell you, he sees everything. He sees everything. And the beauty of that is he sees you in your worst, most wicked and worst state you could ever be in. And he still offers forgiveness. That's why it's beautiful. Because as a young man, I used to do things. I tried my best to love the Lord, but I just would fail and I would fail and I would fail. And it seemed like I failed more than I succeeded. And I would do things in secret and in dark and no one knew about it. But God was always there. And he says, son, come home. I see what you do. But come home. I'll forgive you. You see, that's the love of God. God. That's the love of God. We don't have to do things in secret because He sees anyways. Backsliding is a process. And if you continue to allow yourself to get farther and farther away from God, you will will get to a place where you don't even feel God anymore. And it's a dangerous place. Israel was given a covenant with God. They broke it. Israel. Deuteronomy 20, 32 says this for the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. Deuteronomy 9, 29 says, they are your people, your inheritance that you brought out of great power and with your outstretched arm. God called his people out of Egypt, brought them out of Egypt. He made them his inheritance. Now, this is based off of Deuteronomy 32, and just a little background of Deuteronomy 32 is this. God chose his people, chose Israel, to be the ones to carry the seed that was going to come and destroy the devil. This all started back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, where Eve sins, and and, and, and they they fall, and Eve and Adam, they make a mistake, they they sin, God is going to deal with them. But he deals with the serpent, and he tells this to the serpent who deceived them, who murdered their spirit. He says this. He says, listen, I am going to send a seed from the woman and he is going to crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, but he will defeat you. He will crush you. And and what, what what God promised the devil was this, that from the woman, from mankind, from the human race, is a savior that will come one day. And the devil knows this. And so what does he do? He tries to destroy her family right away and kills one of her sons, but God gives him another one. And, and then all of a sudden there's this big rebellious outbreak that happens in Genesis 6. So what does God do? He sends a flood and he saves his people through Noah. And then once again, after that, corruption happens and things happen again and again and again. And finally, he brings Abraham on the scene. And he says, Abraham, it's going to be through your descendants. I'm going to do this. And then after his sons comes Jacob, Israel. And now God says, it's through you. All you have to do is obey me. It's through you. You're my chosen people. And because of that, what God did was, he says, listen, I'm going to divide up all of the land and I'm going to give every territory its own governor, but I am going to be over Israel. Israel is my portion. It's my inheritance. These are my people and I am going to watch over the people and the land. You know, I was talking to Jose um, last week or a couple weeks ago and and talking about the actual land, that there's something unique about that land. And he said that when he was there in the service, that he, he would see one property that was not Israel and one property that was Israel right next to each other, and one was not as prosperous as the others. There's just something special about the land. Why? Because God said, I'm in charge of it. This is my responsibility. God was over, the governor over this land. Matter of fact, when you look at the story of Nahum who was a, a commander in the army, uh, not for the Lord, but a different army, uh, the a- Aram. And, and he was a great warrior, great general. But the problem is he had leprosy. and he, he just knew You couldn't be healed. You couldn't be cured with leprosy back in the day. It was a disease where they had to separate you because you were, you were contagious and there was no cure for you. And so here comes this great guy, this great warrior, who's, who's powerful and is successful, but he's got leprosy. And he finds out that there's a prophet in Israel that can go that can cure him that could pray for him and he would be healed and so Naam goes and, and he looks for this man he finally gets to the house and he knocks on the door and and the prophet Elisha sends his servant and he says hey hey go get the door and and when you answer the door tell Nahum that that all he has to do is dip in the river seven times, dip into the Jordan River seven times and he'll be healed. Okay, do that. I'm trying to watch the game here. Just go don't take care of that. And so, so the servant goes off and he, and he opens the door and he says, hey, listen, my master said just go and dip in the river seven times and, um, and, and you'll be good. So thank you. Have a good day. Closes the door. And Naam's just like, wait a minute doesn't he not know who I am? I am a great general. I'm a great leader. And and you don't even have the audacity to come and greet me personally. You send your servant to the door. What's going on? He walks away all mad. And then finally, you know, finally people start talking some sense into him. Listen, if he tells you to jump up and down and pat your head and rub your tummy seven times, Do it. Just do it. What else you got to to lose? Just try it. And so he finally goes to the river. He dips seven times. He's healed. Comes back to the door. It must have been halftime because this time Elisha comes and opens the door. And Elisha's there and he says, How you doing? Good. Oh, he's great. And he says this. He says, Listen, Elisha, your God is my God. And I'm never going to bow down to any other God ever again because I know that the God of Israel... Is God. He's the most high. He says, once a year, you know, I have to help my king bow down in the temple of a false god. And I I have to be there for him. That's part of my job. I got to do it. And Elisha says, I understand. Go in peace. But then before he leaves, Nahum asks for something very strange. He says, can I just... Because he offers gifts to Elisha, but Elisha says, it's okay. We're good. But he says, but can I have something? And Elisha says, what? What do you want? And what does Nahum ask for? He says, can I take back as much as the dirt possible? Can I take back land? Can I take this back to my home? Because here's what he's saying. Can I take back the, the very place, the very thing that our God is over? Your God, my God. Can I take back the inheritance of His people? Can I take back God's presence with me. And he wants to take back the land because he knows that God of Israel is over the land. You see, land was very important and God said in Deuteronomy 32, I'm going to separate all the people of the whole world, but over Israel, they're mine. These are my people. So, God wanted the people of Israel to remain faithful to him. And God even, throughout their history, would be faithful to Israel. And here's what he did. As he's leading them out into the wilderness, the Bible says in Exodus 13 that by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way by night and then the pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or night. Listen to what the Bible says. By the day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of the cloud. God was with them. His presence was with them, leading them and directing them through the wilderness. And while they were in the wilderness because they disobeyed and they didn't believe God, they were there for 40 years. And here's what the Bible says in Nehemiah 9. It says, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the cloud... The pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on them in their way to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not even wear out, nor their feet become swollen. Why? Because God's presence was with His people for 40 years in the wilderness. God's presence was with them at the tent of meeting. Numbers chapter 17 tells us to place, to place them in the tent of the meeting in front of the Ark of the Covenant of the Law where I will meet you. God told the people that at the tent of meeting with the Ark of the Covenant, I'm going to meet you. And God would meet people at the tent of meeting. And then later on when they built the temple, when they built a permanent residence for the Ark of the Covenant, the Bible says in 1 Kings 8, that when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their services because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled His temple. When God led them out of Egypt, He went before them in fire and a cloud. When God was in the wilderness with them, with the Ark of the Covenant and the cloud and the pillar, He didn't abandon them. He was always there. And finally they made this tent that would contain the Ark of the Covenant. And the Bible says that God was in the tent with the people and then they made a temple and god was in the temple with the people god's presence was there what is interesting about the tent of meeting and the temple was the ark of the covenant the ark of the covenant what is the ark of the covenant it was this sacred box that represented the presence of god to israel and there were certain things that was in there some some passages say there was a few things, a couple things, others passages say more, but it was basically just this gold box and it represented the presence of God. And it served as the throne of God. First Samuel 4 tells us the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord your God, who is enthroned between the cherubim. The cherubim were these special class of angelic beings. And, and, and the visual is that these cherubim are, are made upon this, this box and their wings are kind of spreading out, forming a seat so that God could come down and be with His people. And it's from this the Lord would be enthroned between the cherub, cherubim. This is why Israel was so blessed because God was with them his presence was with them later on when David becomes king David takes this entourage down to go get the ark of the covenant and to bring it up to the new capital cuz he he ended up defeating Jerusalem and now he's making that his capital and so he wants to bring God's presence into the capital into Jerusalem And so he goes down and and he sends an entourage and they go there and as they're bringing it up and they had these rods that would go through these these rings on the the ark and they they would carry it on the rods and then for long trips they would allow the oxen to help carry it. and, And as they're going, one of the oxen stumbles and the ark starts to sway. And so a gentleman reaches out and touches it to stabilize it. And God strikes him dead immediately. Now, you can read into it all you want. All I know is that what he did was displeasing to God. What he did was displeasing to God. God was holy and that was God's presence. You don't touch God's presence. Because that's God. He's holy. That's why the high priest, when he would go into the the, the Holies of Holies inside the temple. They had this curtain that sealed up the Holies of Holies and inside of that was the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest would enter once a year and they would, they would take off their normal garb and they would put on just plain clothes, a plain robe. And they would make sacrifices, and one for him and one for the people. And he would purify himself. And as he would go into the temple, here's what they would do. They would tie a rope around his waist And they would have a little little box on his head like a bell and he would go in there because they knew that if he was not right, he would be struck dead and they would pull him out. There's no one going in there if you weren't a high priest. There's no one going in there after you. So they would prepare. I don't want to ever see my wife give me a rope when I go up to the pulpit because, you know. You know, those days are all over, but that's what happened. It was serious. God's presence was a serious thing. And here's a man, he sees the ark starting to, to, to sway and to stumble because the ox, and he reaches it out, and God strikes him dead. David is furious. David is afraid. 2 Samuel 6 tells us that David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord with him. To the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of um, Abed, Edom, the Giddite. Takes it to this house. And he says, here, you keep it. And he leaves. What is interesting is where David left it. Now, this man was a Giddite. We don't know much about him. Matter of fact, this story is the only story really about him. And we don't know his family tree or his history, but David just picks this guy. <laughs> Could you imagine? David has got this entourage coming through Fairmont, and he just knocks on your door and says, hey, you keep this. And he leaves. Something strange happens when David leaves. Now, once again, this man was a Gittite. And In order to translate this from Hebrew into English, it literally means this, a man from Gath. This man was in Gath. And so the location where David left this is in Gath. What is so significant about Gath? It's where Goliath was from. David left the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, in a place that was not Israel. It's where Goliath came from. And a and, and matter of fact, there were several other giants, like four other giants the, the Bible talks about that came from Gath besides Goliath. Four other ones that David's men had to go and defeat. This place was not a good place. This was not Israel. This was not blessed by God. This was not his land. This land was given up to all the other gods of the world. But Israel was God's. And, but David leaves it in Gath. He leaves it there. What is interesting is this. Here's what the Bible says. 2 Samuel chapter 6 tells us, The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed, Adam, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. God blessed, according to David, when he fought Goliath, an uncircumcised Philistine. God blessed a man that was in a territory that was not under God, not under the covenant, not under the blessing, and yet because God's presence was there, him and his household were blessed. Something happens when God's presence is with us. Something happens, so David walks by, knocks at the door, says, "Hey, you keep it." All of a sudden, David starts getting reports. Hey, you remember that those people we left the the Ark of the Covenant with? You remember them? They're like so blessed right now. I mean, their their crops are growing. Their, 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 their food is overflowing on their tables. They got so much, they got so many resources. Like they got gold, they got silver. I mean, they are, people are coming. What, they are blessed. And David's like, whoa, we need God's presence here. And then David goes and does it right and, and has the priest go through the whole ritual and bring it up right. And they get it to the presence of God. I say all that because where does that leave us, the church? We clearly are not Israel. We are what the Bible calls Gentile. We are Gentile because see, either you're Jewish, a part of the twelve tribes, or you're Gentile. That's it. <laughs> it's there's you know there's not Mexican Gentile, European Gentile, African Gentile. you're just Gentile. So either one or the other. So what do we do as a church? Where does that leave us? Because clearly we're not Israel. But what was the condition of Israel? Obedience. And if you obey, God said, I will be with you. I want to tell you today that as the church, as followers of Jesus Christ, God's presence is with us. It is not because we have a gold covered box. It's not because we go through certain rituals. It's not because we honor certain things in our life. It is because God chooses to dwell with us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says this Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Today, we form the temple that God chooses to put his presence in. Today, not just you as an individual, the Bible says. Now, yes, we are the church. We're the body of Christ. And there are individuals in the church. But our identity, our purpose, our structure is based upon us being together. And the Bible says that when you together are that temple, God puts his presence inside of us, inside of this place. Too often we forget how special the church is. And I'm not talking about, like I said, the individual believer. But I am talking about the local gathering of Christians. That the Bible says that we together are that temple. Something special happens when we gather together. Something special happens when we meet together in God's home. Us as a people, not a building. Us when we gather together. Listen, we are not special Because of how fancy our building is, we're not special. Because we have a certain denomination, we're not special. Because you have me as your pastor, and I'm not special, and you're not special because of you. None of us are. All of us are just like Israel. Our hearts are always prone to go against God, our our hearts are always so easily distracted and always want to do things we shouldn't do. But the reason why we as a church are special is because God shows up when we gather together. This is why the devil is always trying to destroy us meeting together. Because the devil knows this, that if you gather together, God will show up. And I'm telling you this morning, like Hebrews tells the people, do not give up meeting together. Do not give up meeting together. And I want you to understand the words of Jesus when he said in Matthew 18, for where two or three gather in my name, I am there. I'm telling you that this morning, because we have chosen to gather together, God Almighty, the creator of the universe, the one who parts the Red Sea, the one who forgives sin, the one who is able to do the impossible, is here with us. And that's what makes this meeting special. And it's in this meeting where God does the impossible. It's in this place where we gather together. We form a community, a church, and we say, God, come. And he fills the temple. Now, some of us, sometimes we don't feel any different when we go to church. Well, the Bible tells us that if there's sin in our life, you will not hear him and he will not hear you. You separate yourself from him. Sometimes we come to church and we just feel this heaviness, this weight upon our hearts. God is is wanting you to gather together so that you can find out what it feels like when his presence is here. Sometimes we come to church and everything is great. We just, we're just happy, we're excited, and that's great because now you get to help other people experience the presence of God when we gather together. Israel was not special because they were a certain people in a certain place. Israel was special because God dwelled with them. The church is special because God dwells with us. This morning, I just encourage you, do not give up meeting together. Understand that you form something unique. Understand that when we gather together, the God who could do the impossible is here.